rocketed from a distant planet to a bold new destiny on Earth. Found by a Kansas family and raised as Clark Kent, he learned he possessed the strength of steel, the speed of light, and the desire to help all mankind. He is Superboy. Everybody. Welcome to episode 193 of the Man Screen Podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and on this episode, we will be covering my penultimate episode covering season three of the Salkine Produced Adventures of Superboy, the television series which ran from 1988 until 1992. This week out, episodes 23 and 24, A Wish for Armageddon, and Standoff, to what I thought were memorable episodes for uh, this season. Although I didn't remember Wish for Armageddon as well as I do Standoff, or did rather, now that I've seen both of them. The first one sees uh, Superboy kind of get tricked into making a bad deal, and the second uh, has Clark and the Bureau staff kind of stuck in a hostage situation in a little bar. So uh, we've got that to look forward to uh, this week. Uh, Before I get to that, feedback to address. Feedback here is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on episode 182, and Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. First, I'd like to express my appreciation to Scott Brown for sending email to the show. I always enjoy hearing other fans engaging with the podcast. It makes it feel more like a conversation, and I hope that we hear more from him in the future. I liked how he pointed out that at the end of Nightmare Island, Lana, Andy, and Clark were still stranded on the island, and I liked your explanation that either Superboy told him he'd send help, or they just assumed that he would. I could tell from your voice that you were happy to be talking about Season 3, and particularly The Bride of Bizarro. There were several times I could hear you smile as you talked, and I smiled in response. Like you, I think the change of cast and setting was probably a bit of an improvement. There's only so much that can really be done on a college campus, so the Bureau for Extra Normal Matters, BEM, was a fun idea. In early sci-fi, BEM usually referred to Bug-Eyed Monster, a non-humanoid alien, and adding two supporting characters while dropping Andy, expands the storytelling possibilities. In these particular episodes, it was good to see Bizarro again. He is still the naive, childlike innocent who doesn't understand normal human behavior and interaction very well, but seems good at heart, or at least not really evil. So, teaming him with Lex Luthor gives a good contrast between supervillain and superpowered hazard. I particularly liked how Darla instinctively gets right to the heart of what kind of woman would love Bizarro, which angry, evil Lex may not have figured out. may not have figured out himself with his super genius mind. I liked how Superboy could relate to Bizarro's feeling of being different from ordinary people and isolated and lonely because of that. We often think of how much fun it would it could be to be Superboy or Superman, but, but don't often think of how different he must feel, especially in those versions of the character who don't know much about his origins. I had a slightly different understanding of Lex's scheme involving shooting the duplicate array at the communication satellite. I took it to mean that he would use the satellite to relay the duplicate array to people's TV sets, as it would relay television signals, and the ray coming through the TV sets would duplicate the people watching. Of course, people's solution of getting rid of the TVs was absurd. They could have just not turned the TV sets on. I am looking forward to more of your coverage of this season. The episodes you teased were good ones, as I recall. Live long and prosper, Dave McElvenny. And uh, before he, uh, well, in a separate email, Dave sent an addendum to his first email. 
and uh, Dave Wright there. I forgot to mention that I really enjoyed how you described Clark as being basically unnoticed in many situations. It reminded me of a passage in Elliot S. Maggard's novel Miracle Monday, in which Clark Kent climbed down from a hovering helicopter to the street into a crowd, which ignored him while watching the helicopter. Clark had, and uh, Dave provides a quote from the book, Clark had assiduously cultivated the capacity to be ignored, even while pursuing the most intriguing of enterprises. Big ups to Elliot S. Mangan for fitting the most uh, long SAT words into one sentence that I possibly have ever seen. <laughs> there was simply nothing interesting about the way he climbed to the ground from a hovering helicopter. I'll come back to that. As always, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. Um, yes, I do agree, Dave. I was grateful to hear from Scott Brown as well. It is nice to hear from as many listeners as possible. You know, I'd love to hear from you all. Obviously, that's not going to happen, but, you know. And I'm eternally grateful for all the email I get from Dave. And it's good to know at least somebody is listening to me uh, spout off. But, yeah, and honestly, you know, I'm happy to hear from others, too, because, you know, it's nice to know you guys are out there and I'm not just kind of yelling into the ether, which I kind of am anyway, but that's neither here nor there. And as far as uh, Dave uh, could tell from my voice, but happened to be talking about season three, and particularly The Bride of Bizarro, I'm not sure particularly The Bride of Bizarro because The Bride of Bizarro was only an episode I kind of really remembered in snippets. I mean, obviously Dave has now, but had not at the time of his writing. Heard my episodes on, you know, Roads Not Taken and Rebirth and some of the other ones. I'm hoping uh, he'll hear the smile there, too, and uh, hopefully he noted on it. And uh, and I do agree that the uh, the the bureauing, the change of setting from the college campus to the bureau was for the best. Because, because, because yeah, there's only so much to be done on a college campus. The uh, the bureau, or as Dave put it here, BEM, was uh, is a great place for Superboy to find out about things that... Mike Hedges' interest, uh, extra normal matters would certainly qualify as a job for Superboy. And, you know, maybe the quote-unquote smile that Dave heard as I talked was because, you know, with the introduction of the Bureau, not that there was anything wrong about the college campus, but when we get to the Bureau, that's the show that I remember. I hadn't seen seasons one or two before, so maybe it was just a familiarity with those episodes that I didn't have with the previous two, but... Just spitballing there. And yeah, it was good to see Bizarro again. I still continue to like uh, Barry Myers' portrayal as the naive, childlike innocent who doesn't understand normal behavior. I believe we'll see Bizarro one more time in the fourth season. To be human, I believe it's called. And yeah, Lex Luthor provides a good contrast between supervillain. I like how Dave called him a superpowered hazard. And yeah, Darla getting right to the heart of what kind of woman would love Bizarro, which, uh, you know, I guess, you know, in 1990 writer's uh brain that's something the woman would pick up on not saying uh Lex wouldn't but you know but you know honestly it shouldn't be that big a surprise today to Lex I mean he's seen how Lana feels about Superboy and why wouldn't uh Bizarro want a Bizarro Lana but you know Lex is the big scientist he's not necessarily the observer of humans let's just say that and I really did like how Superboy tried to get in touch with Bizarro to uh, to relate to the feeling of being different. And Bizarro's feelings of loneliness come from his physical appearance, while for Superboy, it's what he can do. He, you know, even Bizarro says that he looks like them, so he can be loved. And, you know, Bizarro, you know, I don't want to call anybody ugly, but I would imagine this is how people who feel as though they are feel about themselves. You know, how could 
someone loves someone that looks like me, and you don't want to invalidate anyone's feelings, but nobody is, quote-unquote, ugly enough to not be loved. But, you know, that is how certain people feel, you know, it's a self-esteem issue, and Pizarro is, uh, is really feeling it. And and Dave says he has a slightly different uh, understanding of Lex's scheme. Honestly, I had no understanding of Lex's scheme. I'm not even sure the writers understood what Lex's scheme was. And uh, it was absurd, people getting rid of their television sets. But you know what? It's absurd, people buying loads of toilet paper during the pandemic. Do people think COVID-19 is make them have to crap more? I don't know. So, and I'm glad Dave is looking forward to the season. I hope, uh, it's kind of funny that the season's almost over, but, you know. I hope Dave has enjoyed my coverage of season three, such as it's been. Still got this episode and the next one to go. And uh, as far as uh, how I describe Clark being, that's how I like Clark. I like Clark as the uh, competent guy who's uh, nondescript and a little bit unnoticed. Although I don't necessarily think this paragraph or two sentences really is uh, the best illustration of that. Aside from Mr. Mangan's uh, affinity for big words, I don't care who it is. There is always something interesting about a guy climbing to the ground from a hovering helicopter. How could you not do that in an interesting fashion? If somebody is climbing to the ground on a, from a hovering helicopter, people are going to notice that. I don't care if it's Clark Kent or what. You know, I'm thinking of more along the lines of, you know, and I think I even used this, this example during the uh, during the episode. I like Clark as the guy who has been in the room with you for a half hour, but you didn't realize he was there until he said something. That's how I like Clark, and I think that's what uh, Elliot Mangan is trying to uh, go for there, but I don't know about this particular passage, Dave. I'm not, I'm not sure that uh, supports what you're trying to say. If someone's climbing down from a helicopter, people are going to notice. That's really all I got to say on that. So I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo. When I come back, a wish for Armageddon. Hang around, folks. Love him or hate him. Everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Man when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Oh, wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne, oh, he, he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Burn, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes. i got a question, though. I'm just am curious. Why? Doesn't Green Lantern have any junk?
right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start this episode off with Wish for Armageddon. This is episode 23 of season 3. Original broadcast date was May 4th, 1991. Directed by Robert Weimer and written by Superboy himself, Gerard Christopher. Guest cast included Robert Miano as Garrett Waters, Mark McCauley as Lee Woods, Peter Palmer as the president, Galina Jovovich as the Russian officer, Rebecca Staples as the tortured woman, Walter Hook as Anatoly, Louis Kroom as the judge, Frank Hilgenberg as Dave, Angie McKnight as the waitress, Peggy O'Neill as the wife, Craig Thomas as the construction worker, Scott McKenzie as the radar operator, Bob Suckler as the reporter, Jeff Breslauer as Marine Colonel, and Christine Page as the doctor. And now synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. As Clark sleeps, the Russians detect an incoming missile targeted for them. They try to stop it with a counterattack, but seemingly fail. Then Clark wakes up, thinking it was a dream. When he turns on the TV and eats breakfast, he sees a news report showing when he signed a declaration for a homeless organization headed by a man named Garrett Waters, directly following his report of the missile attack against the Russians, creating tension between them and the United States. Clark realizes that his dream may have been real. At the Bureau, Lana can tell something's wrong with Clark. He's exhausted. Clark goes to see a psychic named Lee Woods. Lee Woods? What can I do for you? It's about a friend of mine. He's been having these dreams. Everybody has dreams. What's that got to do with me? He's been seeing things in his dreams. Things that really happen later. Who sent you? I'm here on my own, but I work at the Bureau of Extranormal Matters. That's where I found out about you. You guys are like a bad cold, aren't you? You never go away. Look, I know you're psychic. You used to register your dreams and predictions with the Bureau. You're the most accurate one they ever had. Yeah, well, I don't do that anymore. Why not? I just don't, that's all. But I really need your help. This is important. Yeah, well, it was really important for 246 other people, too. A year ago, I had a dream about a plane crash. I saw everything. Airline, flight number, the dates. But I wasn't really sure. At least that's what I told myself. I was so tired of being probed and prodded and treated like I was some kind of freak that I convinced myself I wasn't really sure. So I didn't report it. That was flight 281 out of Dayton, remember? But you didn't make the plane crash. No, but maybe I could have stopped it. I didn't even try. It's something I gotta live with for the rest of my life. So when you come around here asking about this kind of stuff, I only got one answer for you. The door is locked. I don't let that stuff inside my head anymore. I don't want the responsibility. Take him down! But you can't ignore it. You have a power. A power that can help people. Yeah, right. You look like an authority on the subject. Superboy goes to drop off the remainder of some donations to Woods. He can tell that Superboy is distracted. Later, Clark spends a little time at the bar. Woods stands in the room of his home surrounded by candles and lights the declaration that Superboy signed on fire. The declaration burns away, revealing a contract. Woods is then able to speak to Superboy telepathically. Superboy. Boy. Boy. Superboy, 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 can you hear me? Now just relax and do everything I tell you. 
Clark then blacks out. Later, he wakes up to the waitress telling him that he'd been gone for two hours. The news is talking about a burst oil line in Russia. Then Clark flashes of himself breaking it. He then gets nervous and leaves. The waitress sees oily footprints that he left on the floor. As Wood sleeps, he dreams that water is about to kill one. God can still grant you forgiveness. But only if you abandon your heresy. You are the heretic. Kill me and God will curse you to walk the earth until the world comes to an end. A convicted witch invoking the name of God. I can't pray for you. Oh, you'll pray. You'll pray for the end of the world because that will be the only way to end your misery. Are you alright? Superboy is visiting with the president who wants to smooth things over with the Russians. I'm going to be perfectly frank. We could be in a nuclear war by the end of the week. I went through the whole campaign never thinking once that I might be the one who presses the button. What can I do, Mr. President? I'm going to talk to the Russians, try to convince the Premier we're not the ones responsible for these incidents. I won't be too believable if something should happen to him while he's here. You want me to protect him? I'm not sure that I'm the one for the job. At least not right now. Funny. That's how I've been feeling about myself lately. But I'm stuck with it. And if I have anything to say about it, so are you. Woods is working at his job site when he envisions a concurrent conversation between Superboy and Waters. Eternal life. Ever think about it? Think about losing family after family. Watching your children die of old age. Your great-grandchildren's bones turning to dust. Endless pain. Endless guilt. It's the worst curse there is. But soon it'll be over for me. It's a time bomb. I want you to put it in the Premier's hotel room. Set it so it detonates after you're gone. The Soviets will blame the Americans. The Americans will blame the Soviets. And it'll be Armageddon at last. The end of the world. The end of me. You're not going to try and fight it, are you? Look. Written with the blood of a newborn baby in the hand of Satan himself nine centuries ago. Hitler, Lee Harvey Oswald, John Wilkes Booth, they all signed these. And they had to do what I told them. But none of them were able to do what you're about to. Now take it. Now we'll see the culmination of everything I worked for. We've worked for. The pipeline, the missiles. The dreams were real. You were there. You were my way of setting the two sides at each other's throats. In one of the presidential reception offices, key leaders are assembling when Superboy arrives and asks everyone to leave. 
under Waters' control, Superboy plants the bomb inside an urn and seals it. Meanwhile, Woods drives through town using his psychic ability to find Waters. Superboy lets the leaders back into the office, and they ask him to leave so they can resume preparation for their meeting. But Superboy seems hesitant to leave as he begins to fight Waters' control. Woods finds Waters and they fight. I'm not going to let you do it. Who are you? What are you doing in here? I came to stop you. Stop me? This is just the way I saw it in my dream. Are you crazy? Crazy? Maybe I used to be. But not anymore. Woods manages to set Waters' contract on fire while they fight, and Superboy is freed from his control. Meanwhile, Superboy crashes into the office and flies out the window with the urn just before it explodes. While their fight continues, Woods is stabbed just before Superboy comes in. Waters tries to maintain control over Superboy with what's left of the contract, telling him to finish killing Woods. But Superboy burns it with his heat vision and gives Waters a power-packed punch and then helps Woods. In court, Superboy and Woods attend Waters' sentencing. Will the defendant please rise? Is there anything you'd like to say before this court passes sentence? Guilty as charged. Of all the murders, bombings, and atrocities you tried me for, and a lot more you don't know about. And you know something? Long after all of you are in your graves, I'll still be at it until I get what I want. This court sees it fitting that you be forced to comprehend the gravity of the crimes you committed against mankind. So go ahead. Shoot me. Gas me. Electrocute me. It won't work. Certainly, uh, those things have crossed my mind. But you need time to understand what you've done. This court sentences you to imprisonment without parole for the rest of your natural life. No. No! 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 Alright. So, like I said, there were a few things that I remembered offhand about this episode. And honestly, I didn't actually remember them until I started seeing them again. Like, the one thing I remembered was the contract. Although I probably hadn't thought about it since 1991. As soon as I, I kind of saw the contract on the wall there, it started to come back to me about how Waters would burn the contract to bring Superboy under his control. And again, because this episode is only 22 or so minutes, even like 20, even less than that, really, more like 20 or 21, there's not really a lot of time for the episode to mess around, so... It starts with Superboy already having signed the contract to with Waters. And when this episode starts, we're already into it with Clark tossing and turning and then getting up out of bed. And uh, we really don't see what's affecting him at all because his dream, him tossing and turning in the bed kind of pretty much fades to uh, the Russians looking at the radar. And uh, 
whenever they're tracking, they think it's a missile because it's moving at Mach 8, about eight times the speed of sound. Only a missile can move that fast, you know, other than Superboy, of course. And uh, this woman who's apparently in command, uh, she thinks it's the Americans. And being that this episode was probably written before the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, it happened sometime in 1991. I don't remember at what point in the year, though, at least without not without looking it up. But either way, if this was written in, say, 1990, it'd still be considered the Soviets. And we're getting a POV shot of whatever is descending, and then it seems to turn away, and Clark wakes up. So, you're starting off with this episode kind of thinking to yourself, curiouser and curiouser, what's going on here? Although I did notice that Clark got a new alarm clock to replace the one that he uh, smashed in uh, A Day in the Double Life. And uh, this is when we get some of the exposition through this news report that Clark is watching our first thing in the morning. Apparently, uh, two weeks earlier... Superboy signed a declaration of principles, basically under the guise of some kind of homeless uh, outreach program. Uh, the declaration that Superboy signed was uh, supposed to be, at least he thought it was, kind of this pledge that all homeless people will get equal assistance. And uh, since the uh, description of the episode says something about Superboy unwittingly signing a contract, you know, um, there it is. And uh, when Clark gets to the Bureau, he hears about what happened in the Soviet Union, and all of a sudden his uh, dream is coming back to him. And now Lana notices something is wrong with Clark, and uh, she knows he can't sleep, so obviously this is uh, something that he has told her about, that he's been having trouble sleeping lately, and somehow she can tell from looking at him that he's not sleeping. Now, Superboy is Kryptonian. How would... One, does he need sleep? And uh, two, uh, I kind of wonder how that would manifest on him physically. I can imagine mentally, you know, maybe he's a little distracted, a little punchy, you know, kind of like any one of us would be. But how does that show on an in, on an invulnerable face or body? You know, I mean, he doesn't get the bags under under the eyes like some of us do. You know, just one of those things. I guess maybe uh, Lana knows him so well that she can tell us something different about him. I mean, I mean, maybe the way he's carrying himself or something. I don't know. So anyway, uh, Clark goes to see Lee Woods, and uh, this is a guy that we've never seen before, but who apparently used to file his psychic dreams with the Bureau, and apparently he stopped. Maybe his dreams weren't coming true. I don't know. Again, this is another one of those things that we're hearing about for the first time, so we have no way to know whether the Woods is fake or real, but it's clear that Clark believes in it, at the very least. Apparently, uh, Woods stopped reporting his dreams after he didn't report a dream about a plane crash that came true. So it's through guilt that is uh, provi- that has stopped him from using his powers. And Clark wants to learn about this because he thinks he's having uh, prophetic dreams. What he's not realizing at this point in time is that he's actually doing the events that he's dreaming about. He kind of has this hazy memory of what happens to him when he's under Waters' control. So now Superboy is bringing uh, donations to uh, Mr. Waters and uh, the contract... Uh, is up there, signed up on the wall, and even Waters can tell something is off about Superboy. And there's plenty creepy about uh, this act about uh, Mr. Waters. Played by Robert Miano. I thought I'd seen him somewhere, but he's had a lot of acting gigs. He's definitely a character actor. But I hadn't come across anything that I'd remember enough that it would have made an impression on me. I mean, he, did, he appeared in an episode of Deep Space Nine, but I don't even remember that particular episode. To the point where I didn't even write it down. So now Clark goes into a restaurant, the same restaurant that we always go into, and uh, 
Now, uh, here is water, the Superboy's contract, and he pulls it off the wall, holds it over the candles, and burns the uh, the fake text off of it, and it reveals that Superboy made a deal with the devil unknowingly. And I wonder what happens, because Superboy has acted under Waters' control before. Does the fake contract come back and cover up the the evil one? Because it seems like he has to do this all the time. So anyway, it burns off the, uh, the fake text, and... The real Superboy made, uh, I don't know if this is a deal with the devil. It does say Satan is on there, but the episode is clearly shows that Waters is not the devil, just somebody who's cursed to walk the earth to Armageddon. So he's trying to do what he's trying to do, basically so we can die. And he gives the next order, which he believes will help take the, the steps toward that Armageddon. So here is Clark at the restaurant, waking up. He had left the restaurant for two hours and thought he was sleeping the whole time. One, no restaurant would let him uh, sleep at a table for two hours. They need that table for uh, other customers. And uh, apparently Clark bought a juice and uh, ran off. So this waitress was very scared that he did a dining dash type thing. But to make up for Clark gives her a large tip. I think he just hands a floater to her a 10. But, you know, I guess in 1991, that's a pretty big deal. Just for juice at least. And uh, Clark is bothered by what's going on and... Apparently, he didn't change into a superbike costume to rip the oil pipeline as there is oil on his shoes. And when we saw kind of like the flash of him ripping into the oil pipeline, you can see it's clearly his Clark Kent shirt, not in a superbike costume. So interesting. So now uh, we see Woods at home. Uh, he and his wife, they're sleeping. And uh, what Woods is having uh, dreams, it looks like. And at first, I thought that maybe Waters had some kind of power over Woods as well. And that was giving him a psychic dream, but then it became a little bit clear that he's dreaming about Waters, who apparently is killing somebody who knows that either he was a devil or killing her brought on a curse. Um, apparently, the synopsis says it happened 900 years ago, so I guess we'll just go with that. Maybe somebody said it in an episode and I missed it. Uh, that sometimes happens when I'm taking notes, but and then I hear things when I listen back to clips when I'm doing the editing, which really annoyed me when I edited body, the episode where I covered Body Swap, where... Lex mentioned that uh, that Professor Denand worked with Professor Peterson. That was a cool reference that I wish I'd gotten out of that episode. And now I'm giving it to you here. Although, if you listen to that episode, you did hear the clip because I didn't put that in the episode. So there you go. And Woods is even denying to his wife that he doesn't have those dreams anymore. But she knows that he is. And he's not going to be able to hide from it forever. You can't waste any screen time on things that don't matter. So, I mean, you can't do that, really even do that in a two-hour movie, really. But especially in a 22-minute episode, if, if, the, if your story only has 21, 22 minutes, you don't, have, you don't have time to mess around. So, you're spending all this time with Woods because he's going to figure into the final act of this story. So, the U President of the United States is talking to the Russians to try to avert nuclear war now because continuing to live is a good thing. And he wants Superboy to protect the Premier because the regular Secret Service isn't good enough? I don't know. So, Woods is continuing to dream about Waters giving Superboy an assignment to kill the Premier and bring about nuclear war and end the world. Like I said, if the world ends, that's the only way Waters can die. And apparently, we're going to learn that Waters was a, at some point in control of guys like Hitler and John Wilkes Booth. Apparently, they didn't get him uh, what he wanted, but he must have seen in Superboy's abilities a way to get that. So, Woods is seeing the truth, and he knows that he's going to have to do something about this because Superboy has to be gotten out of Waters' control. So Superboy comes into this room where they're going to have their talks. He asks everyone to leave because he needs total silence to listen 
for electromagnetic activity? Well, probably not, but it sounds good to everybody else. And uh, you can tell he's kind of entranced and unsure of himself. And I think people are kind of wondering what's up with him because he doesn't really seem himself. So apparently all Waters needs is the parchment to get Superboy to do his bidding. And now Woods knows that, and he is driving to confront Waters. And while that's happening, the Woods and Waters stuff is intercut with Superboy, let's say, at the White House. And meanwhile, they're trying to get Superboy to leave, and like I said, he's out of it. And this should be raising red flags to everyone as Superboy is trying to fight the programming. And then Woods shows up to confront Waters to save Superboy. And he's going to fight the guy and burn the contract. It doesn't seem as though Waters has any special abilities. He doesn't seem any different from your average human. Vulnerable, can bleed, can get beat up, just can't die. And uh, during the fight, the contract gets burned. And I love how the music swells up. I just love the way this boy burst into the room and took the explosive out. No explanations, just burst through the door, takes the, the urn that it was in, takes the vase that the bomb was in, flies through the closed window, and everybody's saved. Enough of the paper was burned to break the spell, and now Superboy is back with Waters, who wanted Superboy to kill Woods, and he shakes off the spell and burns the parchment with his heat vision. And I like how Superboy is getting a little rough, and Dex Waters right in the chin. And, you know, I'm starting to see in some of these later season three episodes, there's a little bit of the season one George Reeves Superman in Superboy as he's not afraid to throw some punches. So, in court, Waters pleads guilty to everything that's ever happened, and will happen between now and the end of time. And he is sent to prison for the rest of his natural life. And I wonder what happens to him when people realize that he's outliving everyone else. As he can't die until Armageddon. Maybe he'll live until 2020. Which really started to feel like Armageddon. I hope things are better when this episode drops in 2021. So again, not an episode I videotape, but I remember the concept. Remember the Russian missile thing and the burning contract. And it's a decent episode. Almost standard kind of, you know, soul to soul type of stuff, but Gerard Christmas only writing credits are two episodes of this show, and he goes to see the four episode Cat and Mouse, so maybe that'll be a slightly better episode. This isn't a bad episode, but it's not a standout either, so maybe we'll get a better episode of Add a Cat and Mouse. We'll just, have, we'll just have to wait and see once we get to season four. So, at this point, I'm going to take another break, play another promo. When I come back, stand off. Hang around, folks. You're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast. Is an exploration of the DC Comics character, the first superhero to use the name of the vigilante. First published in Action Comics 42 in September 1941, amid comics' golden age and carried as a continuous feature, during those years the vigilante was also a member of the Seven Soldiers of Victory and was one of the first DC heroes to appear on the cinema screen in his own serial. Reappearing in the Bronze Age, the Vigilante had a 1970s renaissance throughout the DC Universe. Greg Saunders, the Prairie Troubadour, leads a double life as a modern country and western musician, while also delivering justice throughout North America as a mass crime fighter, using the tactics and weapons of his rural Wyoming upbringing with his friends Billy Gunn and Stuff Leong. Many a nefarious scheme was foiled with six guns, ingenuity, a motorcycle and a twirling lariat. Howdy, I'm Ranger Gord. Help me follow the trail of the Vigilante on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to finish this episode off with Standoff. Original broadcast date, May 11th, 1991. Episode 24 of Season 5. 
Directed by John Hunick. Written by Joseph Gunn. Guest cast included Tom Schuster as Perkins. Philip J. Celia as Cooper. Francis Peach as Fran. Barry Cutler as Doug. Ellen Landers as the cop. Sherry Doolittle as the screaming woman. James R. Green as the bartender. Ralph Wilcox as Sergeant Barker. Lou Bedford as Lieutenant Riley. And Bob Sokler as the reporter. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. The Bureau staff is at the bar celebrating the departure of Fran, one of its longtime employees, as the news broadcast reports two escaped convicts. One of the convicts is sitting at the bar and suddenly panics and pulls a gun on everyone. Clark sneaks to a back room and tries to change Superboy, but the second man is hiding in the darkness and stops him. The two men decide to wait out the cops in the bar, and then there is a knock at the door. Matt is told to answer the door, and the cop waiting outside wants to check the place out for the convicts. With the door partially open, Matt is trying to hold him off while Clark gets everyone to sing. Evening, officer. Evening. Why is the door locked? Well, we're having a private party. Mind if I come in? Well, normally I wouldn't mind, but you see, the party's getting kind of crazy now, and they're getting ready to cut the cake, and you know, for a policeman to walk in. I don't care how drunk you are. I'm just trying to find a couple of escaped convicts. You gonna let me in or not? Just a minute. She's a jolly good fellow, for she's a jolly good fellow, for she's a jolly good fellow, which nobody can deny. See? How do I? Well, look, don't you need some kind of warrant? Warrant? Well, I mean, this is a private business. It's my understanding that law officers can't enter any private establishment without some kind of appropriate document signed by a judge. All I want to do is just look. could go wrong tonight. Clark then uses his heat vision to heat a water pipe in the ceiling, which causes the hydrant to burst outside. This distracts the cop, and he leaves. Jackson tells the lead convict named Perkins that some doors at the rear of the bar lead to an alley, and as Perkins goes to check, Clark uses his super breath to freeze one of the handles, and he gets his hand stuck. When he tries to go after Jackson, Clark runs at the ferret and is kicked to the floor. He pretends to be hurt so he can be taken into an office in the back, which has a window where he can escape. Lana and Cooper take Clark to the office and lay him down, where the man tries to help him. I'll be okay, really. She just rest, okay? She's right. You, you might have some broken ribs. I was a medic in the service. I have no pain, really. If you say so. Wait. You know, you're not like your friend. He's not my friend. He's. You're different from him. It's not what the law says. Please. Leave the phone here. What are you, crazy? You'll call the cops. I, yeah, I would. Because I don't want to see anyone get hurt. No one's going to get hurt. Well, if you haven't noticed, your friend's a little psychotic. Well, tell the police you cooperated. Right. Next thing you're going to say is that I should trust you. The only way to get out of here. My lawyer said I should trust him. So did the judge and the DA. They all used that word. And I got six years for being in the wrong place at the wrong time being stupid enough to trust people. Oh. Oh, 
Lana, I could use a little rest. Would you mind going back inside? Clark, this is our chance to get the police. And besides, you might have internal injuries. I'm not gonna let you on my sight for two seconds. Out of the bar, Fran tries to convince Matt that they could all gang up on the convicts. We could rush them. What are you talking about? We've got to. Who knows what they're gonna do to us? Just sit tight, okay? We can take them. It's worth a try. Not if somebody gets killed. I can't believe you. Maybe somebody else will have the guts. In the office, Lana's trying to break through the bars on the window to no avail. Clark tries again to get Lana to leave so he can change, but she won't. So he sets the trash pail on fire with his heat vision and directs her to an extinguisher at the bar. While she's gone, he's about to break through the bars on the window until she and Perkins return and find him standing. He tries to get Clark to leave so he can be alone to take advantage of Lana, but his accomplice yells back that there are cops outside. As Perkins goes to the front of the bar, Fran tries to make a run for it, but is caught. He tells Matt to answer the door again and tell him that all is okay. Fran bites Perkins' hand and screams when he tries to shoot her, but Clark jumps in the way and catches the bullet. The cop storms in and gets shot on the shoulder and then runs back out. As backup arrives outside, Perkins takes Clark out and, and uses him for ransom in return. Go ahead. Start shooting. Come on. First one going down is going to be this kid. Much better. Now you listen to me. I want a half a million dollars in cash and a helicopter. You've got... One hour. You don't deliver, and I'm going to blow his brains out. And if you don't think I will, just imagine how that's going to help my insanity plea. So get me what I want, or you're going to be real surprised. Back inside, Perkins is really edgy while waiting for the cops to contact him about his demands. Outside, a police lieutenant arrives and talks to the sergeant who took Perkins' ransom request. Look, I need the money out here within the next 15 minutes, all right? Okay. Just do it! Parker, how come they haven't got that hydrant fixed yet? The utility guys won't come out, Lieutenant. Something about not wanting to get their heads blown off. All right, what's the situation inside? It's Perkins and Cooper, all right. They've got about 10 hostages in there. I've been negotiating with them. Negotiating? That's not our policy. Lieutenant, these men are killers. All the more reason, Parker. Just let me keep talking to him. No! Right. Lieutenant, they're expecting a call from me. Are they? Well, maybe a call isn't such a bad idea. Inside, Clark tries to talk to the accomplice into giving up once again. It's not too late. I'm in too deep. No, you're not. Not yet. But you will be if he tries to kill me. He won't kill you. We'll get what we're asking for. And what if you don't? You sure you won't pull the trigger? You want that on your conscience? Answer it. They need more time. How much time? How much more? Not a lot. Most of the money is already assembled. Not a lot. Hey, 
It's got to be a clean shot. When he x-rays the wall, he sees a sniper on the roof of the street and warns the convicts to duck as the sniper fires into the bar. As things get tense, the accomplice decides to give himself up and tries to stop Perkins. Being held by Perkins, Clark tells Cooper to get everyone else out and he'll stay with Perkins. And Perkins agrees. Now that Clark is alone with Perkins, he gladly disobeys what Perkins tells him to do. Perkins grabs Clark's shirt, revealing part of his costume. Perkins gets nervous and shoots at Clark. Then Clark punches him out. Clark hears the cops getting ready to enter the bar, so he ties himself up and acts like Perkins did it. He slipped and knocked himself out. What about the gunfire? He's the worst aim I've ever seen. Cuff him! Come on! He's Superboy. I saw it all. Well, if you say so, I guess I must be. He is Superboy. I saw it with my own eyes. Perkins, you'd say anything to cop an insanity plea. Get him out of here! Come on! You are Superboy! I know that you are! Yeah! Oh, Clark! Are you all right? Yeah, I'm okay. But with somebody on timing? Here is an episode that I have fond memories of, even though I have not seen it since May of 1991. But always an episode I remembered very well. It's the kind of story that stands out. You only see a handful of times Superman or Superboy locked up in a situation where he can't change. We will see this again in the first season of Lois and Clark and the episode Fly Hard, which, funny story, I didn't realize then was kind of a spoof on Die Hard with uh, Bruce Willis. So let's get into this episode. Uh, starts with a picture of a cake. Fran, who is telling good luck to Fran, who we have never seen before, but is leaving the Bureau to uh, pursue her PhD. Now, again, I wish this was somebody we had maybe at least seen once or twice, but nope. Someone completely new. You know, just sometimes I think some of these things the show tries to do will play better if it's someone we at least seen before i mean it's something i've harped on quite a bit and it just never seems to get better that is uh, one of the things lois and clark will do down the line is it'll give us some recurring characters kind of a step below our main cast that appear long enough that when something eventually does happen to them we're a little more invested yeah i'm looking at you mason drake so anyway it looks like uh jackson is about to roast her and Nobody uh, thinks Jackson's uh, jokes are funny. Looks more uncomfortable than anything else. And apparently no one appreciates it either and is uh, throwing popcorn at Jackson, trying to get him to shut up. And now there's a news item about an escaped convict. And we see this guy sitting at the bar. He's awful suspicious. He looks nervous. And he asks uh, the bartender about the uh, the party that the Bureau is uh, having. Apparently they are regulars and real party animals. I don't know about that, but... These people don't really look like party animals, but, you know, I'm guessing this is a Friday after work, so they're all unwinding. And besides, this is almost kind of looks like a retirement party. I mean, how many of these things do they have? I, I mean, I could, and it's weird, too, because this is not our usual restaurant. This doesn't look like it. Not the usual restaurant that uh, we see the Bureau hang out at. So I just found that interesting. So, uh, so the guy sees uh, the gun in the bartender's cash box, and he just it looks like he just panicked. And now it's holding up the place. Just the sight of the bartender's gun freaked this guy out. And now he's screaming, like he's, like I said, like he's going to hold up the place. And Clark 
ducks into a corner, tries to change Superboy, where he's uh, kind of waylaid by a second man with a gun, and surrenders. This was Superboy's first mistake. He's in the back. No one was there. It was dark. He could have taken care of this situation right then and there, and no one would have been the wiser. Obviously, this is Perkins. He could have knocked Perkins out and then dealt with the situation in the bar. But he doesn't. So worried about protecting his secret identity, but it wasn't in danger. He could have easily covered himself. The criminal doesn't know who he is. So if he did something really quick, Perkins would not be, wouldn't know a damn thing. <sighs> Sometimes protecting the secret identity stretches the, the line of credibility. So we're all locked in this diner. It's a good episode, but an episode didn't have to be, I guess. So Lana says something and uh, Perkins talks to her for a moment. You know, she trash talks the guy with the gun. Never a good idea. And good to see that I was right. And, uh, the uh, first guy, who we don't find till the very end of the episode, his name is Cooper. He panicked, and Perkins is giving him crap for it because their their job was just to kind of wait until the cops left the area and then move on. Now they're holding hostages, which is not what you want if you just escaped from the courthouse. So now a cop shows up at the door, and uh, Clark thinks quickly. Matt is doing a horrible job of holding this guy up. So Clark lends a hand by starts singing uh, "She the Jolly Good Fellow" about Fran. And then after that's done, he uh, sets off a fire hydrant to uh, distract the cop. I mean, between Matt, who's acting very suspiciously at the front door, I'm not even sure why they would send Matt out. It was if they'd send the bartender. At least he works there. Why have Matt? Other than the fact that Matt is in our main cast. Well, anyway, Matt did a horrible job of deflecting this cop, and I'm pretty sure they're going to be suspicious now. So Jackson offers them a kind of an escape route through the back door and into some alley. Not sure what Jackson is uh, trying to accomplish here. I am less sure of what Clark is trying to accomplish because uh, Perkins' hand gets really cold and because Clark used a freeze breath on it. And uh, angry, Perkins is about to shoot Jackson and Clark intervenes and uh, lets the bad guys think they kicked the crap out of him. It's all part of Clark's plan to have them take him somewhere where he can be alone so he can, change, so he can escape and change the Superboy. Again, he was alone with Perkins. He... You could have not just knocked Perkins out and changed the Superboy, and we wouldn't have needed to have this episode. But and I hate thinking like that because I do like this episode, but you know now it's just kind of tainted by the fact that oh, he this didn't have to be. So Clark does a good job of faking injury and asks to be taken to the office to lie down because he sees uh, the window and uh, fortune and it has bars on it to uh, I guess keep the riffraff out. Now Lana is trying to appeal to Cooper's good nature. Because he says, you know, he kind of tells a little bit of a sob story about how he got six years of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But he, uh, she doesn't appeal to him enough to let him leave the phone. And Lana won't leave Clark. <laughs> she can't break the bars. I mean, Clark is trying to get her to leave so he can do it. But, you know, she's giving him grief about her wanting to leave. Pointing out to the fact that Clark could have internal injuries. Well, well, if he does, Lana, what are you going to do for him? There's a lot of rest. Meanwhile, Fran, who's pissed about her retirement party being disrupted you know, wants to rush the attackers. And she's mad that Matt doesn't want to risk anyone's life. And I can see where Matt's coming from. The problem is, the predicament they're in is if the longer they're in there, the, the less chance they have of getting out. I mean, but Matt's thinking that if we wait, we may not die. But you know what? If they rush the attackers, and let's face it, this is not a, this is not a group of uh, star athletes here. This is a mix of Older people like Jackson and Fran, uh, middle-aged folks, you know. These are not athletes. And 
if they rush Perkins and Cooper, there's a good chance a couple of them are not going to survive. And I can understand that not wanting to risk anyone's life. Meanwhile, uh, Perkins in the back wants to be alone with Lana in the back room to, so he can get all rapey. But Clark stands up to him, and he stands up to Perkins uh, quite a bit here. And I do think in this instance, Clark would have blown his identity to save uh, Lana. Oh, fine. That he might do it for. He wouldn't do it alone in the back room with Perkins at the beginning or in the dark when he could have solved this whole problem. But he'll do it now because it's Lana. So um, shit's going to go to hell soon pretty quickly because Fran is doing her best to uh, have a very short retirement. As uh, one cop comes in and I guess to check out the place real quick and Fran yells that they're in there and nearly gets herself shot. Clark dives and catches the two bullets and Jackson kind of takes him to task because he could have been killed. But Clark uh, makes a comment about having been an Eagle Scout and puts the bullets in his pocket. I'm not sure what being an Eagle Scout has to do with uh, getting so shot, but you know, I guess they're just uh, assuming Perkins missed. I don't actually think he showed the bullets to anyone. And I seem to recall that he did when I watched it in 1991, but I guess just the kind of the shot of Clark's hand with the bullets putting them in his pocket is so we can see that he caught them. Not that there was any uh, surprise, because we saw him we saw him do it. He caught one of the dives, another one kind of behind his back, so I guess this will fit in later with Clark's, uh, he has the worst aim I've ever seen uh, comment. So now, Perkins wants $500,000 on a chopper, and as time passes in the bar, Perkins is getting impatient. And apparently, no one has fixed that fire hydrant either, which the lieutenant points out when he arrives, kind of demanding to, to know why the fire hydrant is all spewing water all over the place. And uh, basically, the utility guys don't want to get their heads blown off to fix a fire hydrant. Understandable. So now the lieutenant is going to take charge. And uh, like I said, this is when we learned that the second convict's name is Cooper. And now Clark wants to appeal to Cooper. But at this point, Cooper is in too deep. Honestly, Cooper was in too deep from the moment he panicked. So apparently now the lieutenant is not messing around. He's got a sniper plan that he's going to put a bullet in someone's head and uh, preferably Perkins. And uh, Clark overhears the radio call and saves at least Perkins, maybe Cooper too. And that just sets Perkins off something awful. And uh, even though the shot ends up missing, this is this sets Cooper off too in a different direction. Cooper has had enough and... I'm not sure he, I mean, he's not doing this because he wants to save the day. I mean, he doesn't want to go back to jail, but he's willing to go back to jail so he doesn't have to kill somebody. This is the part where we learn that, at the very least, Cooper is not a killer. I have no doubt that Perkins would kill anybody who is in his way, but I guess Perkins realizing he really only needs one hostage. He lets Cooper take out the remaining hostages, and I remember this ending well. Very memorable as a Clark's shirt comes open, and uh, there's uh, the big S. Even before that, you know, once everybody else is out, Clark is uh, not quite Superboy yet, but he's mouthing off to the Perkins, and you kind of know he's going to do something. I don't know what, because if he was going to do anything, you'd think he'd have done it at the beginning when he had the opportunity in the uh, dark room with Perkins at the beginning. Again, I keep harping on this, but he could have changed and solved this problem a lot sooner. So, like I said, Clark Shark comes open, there's the S, Perkins gets off a shot, and he knocks out Perkins. And now, needing to cover his own ass, Clark ties himself to a chair and uh, says that Perkins slipped and knocked himself out. 
Okay, yeah, I'm not sure who's buying this. The lieutenant even asks about the gunshot, and uh, Clark Perkins the worst, the worst aim he's ever seen. Clark is tied to a chair. How could Perkins miss? But I will say, I wonder what Clark would have done if his shirt didn't come open. Because he didn't open it on purpose. But we'll never know. And uh, as they uh, drag Perkins out, he's claiming Clark is Superboy. And Lieutenant is not buying it. Basically saying he'd do anything to cop the insanity plea. And honestly, so what if Perkins knows he's Superboy? He doesn't know his name. And nobody believes him anyway. I'm sure if Lana heard this, she'd uh, get a look on her face. But, you know. To the best of our knowledge, she didn't hear him as he's as he's dragged up the stairs screaming. So everyone's happy. Clark's alive, which is all Clark wanted from the get-go, to be alone with Perkins so he could take him out. I'm not going there again. So this was another episode that I didn't record, but remember enjoying, and it holds up, except for the uh, first uh, five minutes. I enjoy the episode where Clark has to use his powers on the slide because he's in a situation where he can't change. Personally, I prefer he get out of the situation without revealing his identity, but that's not always the case. We're going to see this concept again in Lois and Clark, but of those two, I think I like this one better. So, next time, we're going to finish Season 3. Can you believe it? And we're going to return to my favorite concept of the series, the parallel universes, with The Road to Hell. Two-parter. So, until then, feedback's always welcome. Man of screen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the shows should come up. Also, we leave the show a, a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that'll help uh, people find the show as well. And you can find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. Until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo. And all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyrighted or original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.